This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. Well, if you can, and you can remain standing, I invite you to open uh, your copy of God's Word, however you might have one, to Galatians chapter 1. If you'd like to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 972. Galatians chapter 1. And if you're joining us today, we've been just beginning a study in the book of Galatians, which, as uh, Pedro mentioned, was of great import uh, to uh, launch the Protestant Reformation, so a little over 500 years ago. It was in the book of Romans that Luther sort of came to light to understand the gospel, but what it, it was his studies and translation and teaching of Galatians that really uh, put forward the, the gospel of justification by faith alone. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, perhaps his very first book, 47, 48, 49 AD, somewhere around there, written to a, a cluster of churches that he had labored tremendously to plant, to initiate and having heard that they were being disturbed and troubled and even influenced by some who were coming along who were teaching that faith in Jesus is necessary, it's a good thing, but it's not everything. You need to add to faith in Jesus, obedience to the law of Moses. And it's that that brought about what we're reading this morning. This is his response to that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed. This is the word of the living God. We pray, God, you would bless the word to our hearts and souls. That you who search the hearts and know the hearts would bring your grace to bear upon us, Lord. Give us, Lord, that which we need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Have a seat. Well, I think that most of you, I'm sure not all of you, but most of you are familiar with uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? That allegory of the Christian life written by the Puritan John Bunyan in which he depicts the Christian faith, the journey of the Christian faith, beginning from the city of destruction to the heavenly city. And the uh, main character in that, you remember, is aptly named Christian, right? 
Well, there's this one scene in the Pilgrim's Progress when Christian finds himself walking on the narrow path. He's walking on the narrow way on the way to the celestial city, surrounded by walls, or walled in, when suddenly two men tumble over the wall and they run up quickly to catch up with him. And Bunyan says, the name of one is formalist, (laughs) and the name of the other is hypocrisy. And they come from the land of vain glory, (laughs) home of the city of deceit. And they fancy that they have found a shortcut. They found a shortcut and are now just as close to the celestial city as Christian. (laughs) They got to skip all the dangerous toils and snares through which we've already come and found themselves close to heaven. Well, Christian is amazed that they didn't come through the narrow gate, (laughs) the gate of the gospel by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And they reason, uh, what matter is it, and I quote, what matter is it which way we get in? If we're in, we're in. (laughs) Well, these men, they're boastful. That's why they come from the city of vainglory, right? They are boastful of their own accomplishments, their own achievements, their own religious doings, right? Commenting on the Pilgrim's Progress, Charles Spurgeon said, they glory in that their show of religion has merited their own favor and praise of others, and they are both deceived in thinking that God is equally impressed with the externals. (laughs) What is Bunyan saying to us in in this point of the story? What is he saying? What he's saying to us is that there is no salvation apart from faith in Christ alone. That Jesus and his merits, his doings, is the only way by which a sinful human being can be put in the rights or made right with God. He is the gate, right? He is the entryway. He is the path, the way, the truth, and the life, and we must come through him by faith alone. And so Christian, back to the story, Christian warns the pretenders Formalist and hypocrisy, he says to them, you come in by yourselves without his direction and you shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. You see, and that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake in the gospel, being with or without the mercy of God, knowing whether you truly are on the right path. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Paul here is contending for the gospel. This is what he's writing about. Paul is saying there is but one way to be right with God, by faith in the doings of Jesus, right? Cling to it. He is contending for the gospel. He's telling them cling to the gospel of Christ with all your heart, with tenacity. And he gets right to the point in verse 6, right? Right at the point where he would normally launch into, I give thanks, (laughs) I give thanks to God for you always, or et cetera. Instead, he gets right to the point by explaining the profound implications of turning away from the gospel of Christ. The profound implications of altering in the slightest way the apostolic gospel made known to him through the resurrected Son of God. And so what is Paul doing here? 
He, again, he is contending for the gospel, and he's contending for the souls of these Christians whom he has led to Christ, uh, so he believes. And in these three short verses we'll look at this morning, verse 6 through 9, what Paul does explain to you and me is, why cling to the gospel of Christ with all tenacity? Why cling to the gospel of Christ? Well, first of all, because every departure from the divine gospel is without question a departure from God. Every departure from the divine gospel is without question a departure from God. But first, remind you, remind ourselves, what do we mean by gospel? Most of you know that the term uh, means good news or refers to good news. What, what, what is the good news? Just to be clear, and we have guests here today. The gospel is the good news the, that announces, that declares what Christ has done to provide for the salvation for sinners. What Christ has done to provide for the salvation of sinners. Specifically, the gospel communicates the good news regarding the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes the gospel in a nutshell in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 when he says, I have delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, says Paul that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was really dead, and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's the gospel in a nutshell, and the gospel is not only the news, but the implications, the significance of that news. What does it mean that Christ died for our sins? It means that he has died because of our sins in place of us on our behalf and has satisfied the justice of God regarding our rebellion. And he was raised the third day that we might be justified. Raised the third day as an affirmation that it is truly finished. The work of redemption is done. So you see, the gospel really is good news because the gospel announces that that which God demands from us, from sinners, God himself freely supplies, grants to us by grace through faith in the doings of another, in the doings of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, you see, in a nutshell for you again. And Paul says, I'm astonished. I'm amazed. <laughs> a modern paraphrase, I'm blown away. <laughs> I just can't believe it. What can he believe? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. So quickly, that's part of it just boggles the mind for Paul. If we are right that he wrote sometime maybe 48, 49 AD, it's probably only been a, a year to a year and a half maybe. And since Paul had preached the gospel there and heard and saw these people come to faith and, and, and appointed elders in these churches. And some think that the language so quickly has a, uh, a subtle Old Testament allusion to the, the greatest apostasy of the Old Testament took place so quickly, and that was the apostasy of the Israelites. Having just been delivered from, from Egypt, from bondage to slavery, they very quickly, at Mount Sinai, asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. You know. 
where they still worshiped, they were saying, the true God, but the true God through this image. That might be overly subtle. We're not sure that the Galatians would have picked up on that. But, but the point is that Paul is shocked, that Paul is amazed that they could so soon, after having heard the good news and received it, be, be, be so ready to embrace, so ready to receive uh, these other teachers who are presenting uh, what is not really a gospel. Remember, he uses the verb deserting, which is a verb that's used in a military context uh, to refer to, uh, to those who've gone AWOL, to deserters, to turncoats. But it's all, it was also a term used in the Greco-Roman world to describe a change of philosophical belief. And, and that, was, uh, that was really important in that day. You know, people t- adopted a worldview underneath a certain philosopher. And this term deserting was used to, des- to describe when someone says, I'm done thinking this way and my worldview is now this, you see. But Paul's not using a word that refers to, you know, ah, you changed your dinner plans, you know. This is a major change. He's saying you had an outlook on life, on eternity, which is a worldview that encompasses everything, and you are so quickly ready to toss that out the window and embrace another worldview. I'm astonished, he says. I'm astonished. But mainly I want you to see here, why cling to the gospel of Christ? Because every departure from the divine gospel is a departure from God. Notice in verse 6, there's the end there, that Turning to a different gospel is equated with what he says at the beginning. You are so quickly deserting him. Him. And that's where he begins. Hmm. They might not have expected that, but that's how he starts. He's saying that by embracing a different message, they were turning away from the living God. Him, him who called you in grace in Christ. For Paul, the verb kaleo, this verb to call, when he's using it in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this manner, in this context, almost always refers to the effectual call of God uh, that originates from the Father. I think he's speaking of God the Father who called you. He says what? The one who called you in the grace of Christ or into the sphere of this relationship which is characterized entirely by grace. Grace to be found in Christ. Right. And yet you're turning away from him, the one who gave you this living water. Huh? For you, for anyone to turn away from the gospel is to turn away from God himself. You cannot separate the two. Departing from the truth is always a departure from God because the truth, the two, are always connected. Let me put it this way. Truth, the truth in Scripture, which is the truth, truth is not just a set of propositions, but God has revealed to us that truth is also personal. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Scripture says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. 
Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, you see. We cannot separate the two. There is no departing from one and not from the other. And I, from my own personal experience and as a pastor and as just as a, as a, a friend of other believers, a brother, um, whenever people turn from the truth, they begin to distance themselves from God. And they begin to feel that. You cannot turn from one without turning from the other. And that's what leads to the deterioration, you know, in the relationship, in the, in the personal worship, in the sense of belonging, in the sense of knowing I'm in an environment of grace where God loves me and so forth. I've seen it many, many times, right? Because the gospel creates an intimacy, a personal intimacy with the living God. The gospel is not just signing up to join a club. It is, it is coming into a living, abiding relationship where you are in union now with Christ and with the Holy Trinity. Uh, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said once, he said, it is impossible to divorce your personal walk with God from your personal convictions about the Christian gospel and your attitude towards the truth. You can't separate those, right? Is the situation hopeless for these people or people like these that uh, he's writing to? Well, I do not think so. If so, he wouldn't be writing. <laughs> if it was done, if it was hopeless, that's not the case. And in fact, the verb deserting is in the present tense. It's something they were in the process of doing. And as uh, one commentator points out, the whole context of Galatians implies that this is, it's in process. And Paul is contending ardently for their, their soul and writing to them because there is hope, you see, of them getting things straight. They've been, uh, they've been confused. He writes to correct them. In chapter 5, 1, he says, stand firm, you see. Stand firm, so. And I emphasize that because some of you might have drifting friends or children, loved ones, people you know and who are now on that raft that's sort of floating away from commitment to the gospel that they've heard or claimed that they have believed or grew up listening to and so forth, you see. That while there's life, while there's breath, there's hope. And so here's Paul contending for people that he's evangelized, discipled, pointing them back to the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now passages like these inevitably always bring up the question in a church of uh, reformed doctrine like this that always comes up, which is, well, if you believe in the perseverance of the saints and it's guaranteed that every true believer will be kept by God, why, why warn them? You know, why, why, why say things like this? And beloved, without going into it again at great depth, I remind you, beloved, that the living God not only decrees, not only plans the end to which he is taking us all, but the means to that end, right? And so, yes, yes, absolutely, the scripture uh, says that we will be kept in the faith and and that every true believer, though we may waver, though we may drift away for a season, that we will persevere in the faith. But it's in the faith <laughs> that we persevere, you see. 
and God uses warnings as, as a means to do that. You remember 1 Peter 1.5 that we are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How does he keep us in the faith? Through warnings, through teaching, and so forth, right? Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 1 Corinthians 1.8, he is the one who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's glorious news. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Jesus Christ. We can say, hallelujah, it's, it's all in his hands, Right? John 10, 29, my father was given them to me as greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Colossians chapter one. And here's where we find passages where you find both of these wed together, correlated. The assurance, the absolute promise of God that you will be kept, and then the warning that therefore you need to stay kept, <laughs> stay believing. Colossians 1, 22 and 23, he has now reconciled you reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, glory be to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord, if indeed you continue in the faith. 23, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so we don't, we shouldn't shy away from the fact of passages like this. These passages are not teaching that a true Christian will be abandoned by God and lose their salvation. It's showing us how God keeps us in the faith through warnings. He, I can promise you that he can promise you that he would keep you safe as you are driving at night in the middle of a storm on a coastal road right alongside a cliff. Promise you he'll keep you safe. That doesn't mean you just floor it and close your eyes. Because he's going to put warning signs out there saying, curve ahead, you know, landslide. He's going to give you a car with good brakes and a windshield. And the means to the end, so enough said for that. Paul says, cling to the gospel because every departure from the divine gospel is a departure from God. You can't separate the two. Secondly, because every other gospel is not truly a gospel. Verse 7 not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is only one gospel, beloved. It is the gospel of Christ, the gospel that came to us through the apostles by divine revelation. Its origin is not mankind. Its origin is God himself. And the false teachers were distorting that gospel retaining its content but adding to it and saying faith in Jesus is essential that's great but they being of Jewish background were saying you but you also need to add to your faith in Jesus obedience to the law of Moses and this Jesus plus gospel we've already said is is no gospel at all and Paul's being I think Paul's being very exact here very artistic in the way he uses the language uh, to make his point, because in the New Testament language, the New Testament Greek, Koine Greek, there are two different terms, both translated another into the English. The first uh, Greek term is heteros, which means another of a different kind. 
and you hear that in our English, heterosexual. Heteros, another of a different kind. And then the other term is alas, which means another of the same kind. Uh, as John uses that when he speaks of uh, Jesus saying, I will send you another comfort, comforter, another of the same kind, because he'll be just like me, you see. And so here, what Paul does in, in verse 6, he fir first he uses heteros. He says, you are turning to a different gospel, a heteros gospel, a gospel of a different kind, a different nature. And in verse 7, he uses alos, but not that there is another one of the same kind, because there is no other one of the same kind. You've left the category. You, you're out. They're, they're, you're not in gospel category. There is no other one of the same kind. Oh, they may use the word gospel, but it's not the gospel, right? There's no other message. There's only one gospel. Uh, one commentator says, when you turn from the gospel, you have nowhere else to go. When we think of the words of Jesus to his disciples when he had preached that difficult word, right? And said, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws them. And it says in John chapter 6, many disciples left, said, boy, that's enough of that. I believe in free will. I'm out of here. And he turns to his disciples and said, well, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave? This is hard teaching, hard to swallow. And what did they say? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other place to turn. There will be mysteries I can't understand. There will be questions I will have till the day I die. But where else am I going to turn? You have the words of eternal life. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other way. And I know, and I realize, I say this to a group of people, mostly all of you are either believers you, or, you're, or you're close, you understand the Christian worldview to some degree, but you understand the pressure that's going on, right? It's difficult to accept the exclusivity of the gospel message. In our culture of religious pluralism and relativism. And, I, and I, 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 you may think I'm belaboring this, but this is the atmosphere. This is the, the oxygen that we breathe and our children breathe every day. So we have to keep on this and remind ourselves we live in the time of the exalted individual, the exalted self, right? We live in the time of, of, of what uh, Carl Truman has called, remember, the expressive individualism. Where the source of authority, remember, is not outside of us, not divine, not revelation. The source of authority is in us individually, personally. We create our own truth. We create our own reality. Boy, we create our own identity. We just pick it out of the thin air, you see. And then we live in a time where there, we're told there is no one absolute truth because any absolute truth is, is simply a, a, uh, a coercive uh, narrative that is seeking to crush our individuality. Of course, that itself is an exclusive claim that we are supposed to swallow, you see. And so I understand that it's hard to hear this. It's hard for your friends to hear the exclusivity of the gospel. But understand that. Remind yourself. Listen, it's not a matter of convincing them through logic 
It is a matter of the gospel being the power of God under salvation for all who believe, and faith itself is a gift of God, and he doesn't give it any other way than hearing the gospel. So we're, what can I say to you? You have one task, contend for the gospel. That's how God saves people, he'll say. And Paul is not original to this idea. Again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so the idea of the self, you need to remember the vast difference in this whole idea of identity and the idea of the self. The biblical Christian self looks outward. The, the Christian self looks outward to God, to his revelation for understanding, interpreting, interpreting the, the creation, the universe, and finding identity. I am what God says he's made me, and I am what God says I am. The modern self looks inward for meaning. And the Bible draws lines regarding identity where the world doesn't want them. But nothing will break through and bring life but the gospel. And so cling to the gospel, beloved. You don't have to out-rationalize, you know, out-philosophize your neighbors or your friends. You need to share with them the testimony of God's grace in your life and explain how that came about through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the saving work is God's, right? Stand firm. And we should note that the Galatians were being influenced not only by the by the by this message of Jesus plus, and one would wonder, how could somebody who has already received just faith in Christ and understand grace, the beauty of grace, now start thinking, if you're a male, you gotta be circumcised. How could you embrace that? <laughs> and how could you start thinking you're gonna keep the law of Moses? You see, it's not just, it's, ju it's not just the, the subtlety of adding to the message and altering the message, it is also often the power of personality. There were people preaching these things, people influencing them, people bringing about the argumentation. And they were claiming, again, to be the greater source of religious authority. They could bind the conscience. Remember, we think this took place just before that council that is recorded in Acts 15 where the question was settled once and for all by the early church that no, Gentiles do not need to come through the Jewish door also in order to be right with God. But, we, but Luke records that in Acts 15, uh, this is what they were saying to uh, the apostles who came when they arrived there. It says, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you. It's the same verb. They have agitated you. They've, they've stirred up your hearts. They've troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So these false teachers were claiming they have come from Jerusalem, you know, the true church, the Jerusalem church. James, the brother of the Lord, sent us, you know. And it wasn't too much after Paul wrote Galatians that these words were shared, that we hear these people agitating you, stirring up your hearts. And that's what Paul is saying here. He said there are those, in verse 7, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And in fact, just like every group, there's always a ringleader, 
There's always a ringleader, and we don't know who he was, but in chapter 5, verse 10 of Galatians, Paul says, the one who is troubling you. The one. Who is he? We don't know. You know, people rarely live, leave, people rarely leave the path simply because of one little sort of thought that came and more often than not is the strength of personality influence someone they love someone important to them someone they respect someone who commands some sort of uh, uh, of allegiance in some way be it intellectual or what have you someone of importance and so it's this hammering in a relationship or a subtle sort of drawing away and speaking and influencing and so forth. The force of personality. People like to gather around a chief, you know. And so there was one who was heading this up. We don't know who he is. And often people gather around a voice like that just because it titillates something that, that, that uh, is a temptation to them. And they start listening without thinking about the implications of what they're hearing. Well, Paul make, is making clear what the implications are here. You see. He's trying to help us all. What they were saying, he says, was they were, what they were doing by what they were saying was they are dis distorting the gospel of Christ. And it's interesting because he says they want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's interesting. I don't think uh, if they came from the Jerusalem church that per se that they thought that, they, that they, they, they knew they were doing wrong. In other words, they probably thought they were improving the gospel and that it was necessary. You guys have missed the boat. It's great, but that's only halfway. You need the rest of it. So perhaps that's how they were motivating. But Paul say, yeah, say, what Paul is saying is, yeah, but they knew and they planned that they understood they were distorting the gospel of Christ. This is now the gospel of Christ plus. And that, that's the power, you see, of, of influence that we need to be aware of. Uh, any alteration to the gospel, any addition, however minor, any subtraction, however minor, makes it not the gospel. And this is what made the, the Reformation such a momentous uh, awakening in the history of the church. It wasn't that the gospel was made up in the 1500s or discovered in the 1500s, but recovered from its divine source, the apostolic inscripturated revelation of the Holy Scriptures when Luther and, and others went back to the fontes, the, the, the sources, the originals. Why Cling to the gospel of Christ because every departure from the gospel of Christ is a departure from God because every, any other gospel is not truly the gospel. It's a distortion. And then lastly, because to preach a false gospel is to be condemned. That is to say, if you remain committed to that false gospel by the time you live this life, it is to be condemned. And by implication, I would say, though Paul is talking about those who were preaching and teaching this false gospel, by implication to embrace the false gospel and remain committed to that uh, is to be condemned. And Paul uses a well-known word, uh, and that word is anathema. Yeah, you maybe heard that word before. 
Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. Now some see the word anathema as simply referring to being excommunicated from the church. In other words, let him be cut off from the church. Let him be disciplined out from the church. But, but there are many very good reasons to believe that Paul is saying something much more much more powerful. Because what is at stake here is eternity. Right? That's what's at stake here. Uh, 22 out of the 26 times that the term anathema is used in the Greek Old Testament, 22 out of those times, it always refers to a ban being banned, you know, being cut off, set apart from the people of God for utter destruction to receive the curse of the covenant for not being faithful to the covenant. It's about being damned. It's damnation. And again, in common parlance, I say this. Uh, I, say, I don't say this with any joy in my heart. What Paul is saying is let them go to hell. Is literally what Paul means. That's not the term he uses, but that's what... The implication of anathema is, you see. And Paul uses the term elsewhere, and again, we can see what he means by it. It doesn't simply mean let him be disciplined out of the church for a period of time. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says, listen, I love my people so much. I, I, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, Romans 9, 3, I could wish that I myself were anathema. I wish that I could be accursed, and here's what he means by accursed, cut off from Christ. He says, if it was possible, I wish it, if, they would be, if it would save them, and not that it is. But you can see that what it means is not just let them be disciplined out of the church, but may they face the curse of the covenant, may they face the damnation of God. That's what Paul's praying and asking upon these people. Uh, he loved these churches so much that that's what he said. Now, in an age of tolerance, <laughs> in an age that prizes tolerance for everything apart from the Christian worldview, <laughs> above all things, right, hearing words like this, right, uh, sound very, very harsh but it's what's at stake that matters. And if that's what wakes somebody up, uh, it's love, because love, love warns. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And so love warns. Love doesn't stay silent about unpleasant truth. It doesn't conceal realities. You've heard before that Jesus spoke of hell more than any other New Testament writer. At least that's how we have the record of the things that he said. And he used very strong language to, again, to warn people, describing hell in various ways, unquenchable fire, and yet darkness, unending, utter separation, anguish, and so forth. 
And so why cling to the gospel? Because to preach a false gospel and to, I would add, to remain committed to that is to be condemned. And we also learn from verse nine um, where Paul then repeats himself after we have said before. Now he might be saying, I'm talking about verse eight, or he might be saying as we, which would mean when we, Barnabas and I, were there preaching you, we told you this. That might be what he's saying. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive. And you look at verse 8. If, it, if we or an angel were to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be anathema. And so what, we're, what we learn from what Paul's saying here is what Paul's saying is, is that the, the, the truth, that the, the truthfulness and the power of the gospel does not depend upon the messenger. That's an implication of what he says here. You see. If you have the true gospel and the spirit of God determines to empower it, it doesn't matter what the vessel, who it is, you see. And if you, it doesn't matter if the vessel is someone like me, if it's a if I don't preach the gospel, says Paul, let me be accursed. You know. Luther, in his commentary in Galatians, since we're thinking on Reformation Sunday, he put it this way, in his own way, right? That which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas or Pilate or Herod should profound it. In other words, what? What saves? The gospel, not the messenger. And so Paul says, I don't care who's talking to you. If it's me, if I come back a year from now, says Paul, and I'm preaching something else, let me be accursed. <laughs> throw me out, please. <laughs> Quote me <laughs> and throw me out. Yeah, the power lies in the gospel and the spirit of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. For it and it alone is the implication is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Right? Well, as we turn to some application here at the end, it's, it's utterly obvious, right? I think it's clear. It's right on the surface. And that, and that is this. Primarily, I want to say this. If a false gospel could arise so quickly after being taught by Paul and be so immediately embraced so as to as to take in even Peter and Barnabas, we're told later, for a period of time were taken in. If that could happen, right, in such a short period of time, there is no doubt that a false gospel, which is no gospel, can arise right here and quickly. And Christian history has already demonstrated this, right? And the, what's happening here is just a warning to us to contend for the gospel. Never presume it. In one of the preaching class moments that we have at the seminary, I bring back to the, uh, the young students there a reminder that you should not assume that they are connecting everything you say with Christ and the gospel. You should not assume, because people are in a Christian church, that they all have a comprehension of all the hours you spent studying about all this stuff and you've been thinking. 
Your job is to be a minister of the new covenant. And you are to connect what you're preaching to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't presume it. Don't assume it. And so, yes, that's, that's, the, that's right on the surface here, right? There have been many, many false gospels, and it's usually that one little drop. All it takes is keep Jesus, keep, keep him there, keep all the right words, justification, grace, and so forth. Add one little drop of poison to a glass of water, and the whole glass of water is poisonous now. What are some modern-day false gospels? Some of them are very subtle. They creep into our hearts. Most often, none of us would say, I'm going to leave this gospel and adopt this gospel. <laughs> It's thinking, things that start coming in and, and tugging the heart. There is the gospel, false gospel of the prosperity movement. The prosperity gospel, also known as the word of faith. And, and this, this teaching teaches that Jesus is a means to health, wealth, and prosperity. As opposed to a savior who reconciles us to God to deliver us from bondage to sin and enables us to endure maybe the lack of wealth and lack of health and no prosperity. And so it's a, it's a different gospel, it's a different Jesus. It is an attempt to enthrone our desires rather than Jesus as Lord, you see. And rather than Jesus being our treasure, our, our, our desires become our treasure. And his own warning was, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It needs to be, it needs to be shown as such when we have an opportunity. Secondly, there's the, there's the self-help gospel, for lack of a different sort of a, a title. And this is the prosperity gospel's close cousin. It's born of the me first, the, um, you know, the self generation we find ourselves in. The difference is it's not all about wealth. It's not all about wealth, but it's still all about me. <laughs> Always about me. And Jesus is presented as God's gracious tool for improving me <laughs> and improving my life and my business and uh, etc. Jesus is presented here as a means to self-improvement rather than, again, the sole means to redemption. And the product of this has been man-centered churches, me-centered churches and Christians where the preaching becomes a form of religious therapy. And the structure of the message is uh, are essentially how Jesus can help you have a better you fill in the blank. <laughs> a self-help gospel. The therapeutic gospel. And one gospel, false gospel has come into, into rise and has been stirring up. The church is the political gospel. I'm going to step on your toes. It's very subtle. The political gospel is very subtle because it's not so much about doctrine as much as it is about what a person truly trusts. Okay? In an article on the Center of in the Center for Faith and Culture, Steve Madsen writes and says, This gospel is not dangerous because of what we claim to believe. 
but because of what we functionally believe. Got a good doctrinal statement. Jesus is my eternal hope. But the way you live doesn't seem to bear that out. You see, they proclaim Jesus as Lord, but actually functionally place their hope, not in Christ, not in the sovereignty of God, but in political parties, agendas, laws, officials, etc. You say, well, how would you measure that? What metric would you use? to show, show me that that's what uh, someone's doing. Political outcomes become more important than eternal ones. Because that's where their hope is. Well, how would you measure that? It becomes evident. It does no hiding it. It becomes evident in what we prioritize. It becomes evident in how we interact with the world, primarily. You see, do we see people as political enemies or fallen, broken image bearers that need the grace of the living God? Is the world around us, your workplace, your neighbors, your are they your battleground or are they your mission ground? Your battlefield? or mission field. And uh, this, what's happened the last three years here has created this hypersensitivity among a lot of Christians where they have certainly elevated political outcomes more important than eternal ones. And I'm sure some of our mission partners across the world living in an utterly, utterly helpless political situation, utterly unbelievably confining, controlling, crushing political situation, they would find it ridiculous that you want to leave because they're going to take away your mower and you aren't going to preach the gospel there because he wants your gas mower. My goodness. Yeah. And it also becomes evident, again I say, in our prioritization. Um we place, again, political outcomes ahead of eternal ones, not only in the way we relate to people, but in you know, some of the, the decisions that we make. What we're willing to live with and what we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of, uh, of a better political environment. You know, some will move. There are a lot of good reasons to move. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying some will move and have moved for the sake of political outcomes even if they can't find a solid Bible preaching church because political outcomes are more important than eternal ones. Who cares that my little Jimmy isn't hearing the truth, the gospel pure over and over? I can mow my lawn with my gas mower. Being a little facetious, I know, but I'm making a point. (laughs) What do you prioritize? Mm -hmm. I know some of you here have been agitated. Not just by me just now, but (laughs) but you've been agitated by some of these false gospels over time and other ones. And maybe even right now, some of you are teetering, wrestling with some of these issues. I understand that the cultural pressure is intense. 
That's why we gather to put what's central, central again. That's why we come together and build each other up and exhort one another unto love and good deeds. <laughs> to remember, you know, let them have your gas mower, buddy. <laughs> that's not the reason to abandon your mission field. There may be another good reason, but that's not the one. You see. We gather together. Some of you may be agitated, teetering even right now. And this is Paul's message to you. Paul's message is not, may you be cursed. <laughs> Anathema to you. That's not his message. His message is, have you come to Christ? Have you truly come to him? Have you seen him yet as the sole means of being right before God, which is what matters more than anything else? And if so, he says to you, Christian, cling to him, contend for the gospel. Don't let them peel your hands off at one finger at a time. Hold on to the gospel. There's no other way. There's no other gate. You can't tumble over the wall right at the end by some other means. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the merits of Christ alone. In the words of, uh, of Christian and Pilgrim Progress, in essence, it matters what way you think you get in. It matters. C.S. Lewis once said this. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. So what's the right road? It is gracious. It is incredible news. There is no striving for you to do. God has accomplished it all in the doings of his son. Admit your need. Humble yourself. And believe that Jesus is the son of God who suffered for your guilt and sin and was raised the third day to secure your own resurrection. That's it. And say no to these other gospels. The good news we finish and come to the Lord's table, is this, that Jesus took the anathema of God for us. Yeah, he took on the curse. Chapter 313, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's worship him and draw near to him here at this table. Rejoice if you're a Christian. He has taken the curse. Amen. Lord, thank you uh, for the profound word here that Paul has written. And we pray, Lord, you give us strength to, to remain on that road, Lord, as windy, as strong as the wind may be. Help us to contend for the truth. Remain committed to it, Lord, with love, grace, kindness, for those who are lost. Give us, Lord, discernment when we hear the culture speaking to us and give us compassion for them when we recognize how lost they truly are. And now, Lord, come and meet us during this time of the supper. We pray for your grace and mercy 
to continue, Lord, to minister to us and strengthen us. In Christ's name, amen.